Our Father in heaven, we stand in awe of you this morning. We consider your righteousness, your holiness, your justice, your wrath. We consider your mercy, your loving kindness, your grace towards us. And we, Lord, we stagger at the revelation of your nature and your character, your worth, your works, and your perfections this day. We bow before you, laying our hearts low, recognizing that in light of your perfect presence, we have, Lord, only woes, Lord Jesus, deserving of us. Yet because of your great might moving heaven and earth and delivering at the fullness of time your Savior, Jesus Christ, your only begotten Son, we can have salvation and our sins washed away and the blood of Christ can ransom us, redeem us and justify and sanctify and eventually glorify us and set us, Lord Jesus, in good standing with you. We thank you that this is a work that you have done entirely and only by your sovereign power. And we, your people, rejoice, Lord, that we have been made worthy to speak your name, to stand in your presence, and to bear your truth. I pray as we open the scriptures, Lord, that we would do so humbly, submissive to the word of Christ. I pray that each one of us would be willing subjects of the King of Kings as we find our place as your citizens in the kingdom of God. I pray, Lord, as we bow our hearts before the authority proclaimed in your holy scripture, that you would write it on the tables thereof. I pray, Lord, that it would bring to us, Lord, repentance and also confidence to proclaim your word. So shape us and change us, Lord, and work within us a heart to will and to do of your good pleasure. We thank you for what you have prepared in advance, the footsteps for us to walk in as a result of the means of this service today. And I pray that our feet would find them as we move forward in our faith and understanding. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise God. I hope you are thankful this morning, as we should be every moment and every time opportunity the Spirit offers us to gather together to open the Scriptures, to spend time in the presence of Almighty God. This morning I would invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 24 as we continue our Matthew series. This morning we're going to cover just three verses. Again, Matthew 24 verses 29 through 31. These verses are very rich, though brief. Each a word just about in them could make a fruitful word study. They draw on a wide swath of prophetic language and contextual background from the Old Covenant. This morning will be attempt to glean from that source in part and also to understand its more immediate context. This is the fifth great discourse that Jesus delivers in the Matthew. And we found that the context begins in chapter 23 where the seven woes are declared over the scribes and Pharisees. And then we see the prophecy that the temple itself will be destroyed. And we find Christ speaking prophetically to his disciples that inquired as to the time, the place, and the circumstances of when he will bring his kingdom in judgment. We find his answer then coming forth in Matthew 24 and 25. He does so by specific historical prophecies. He does so by preparing his disciples to endure the tribulation that will come. And in each of these, applica- or in each of these we find application for our lives today. He continues through the course of his discourse to give parallels to help us to maintain a position of readiness, which is again applicable to the disciples, to the disciples of that era, and to his people who yet serve him today. 
And he also does so with an air of triumph that comes through the words and gives us our marching orders to advance the kingdom of God even today. So with that introduction and your Bible open to Matthew 24, would you stand with me if you're able out of reverence for the word of God and let us read these verses. Follow me as I declare God's infallible word today. This is Matthew 24, 29 through 31. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. This is the word of God. You may be seated. The inaugural or opening events, the chapter of Christ's rule and reign, is unfolding before us in prophetic form, and soon it will take place in history, even as the timing and the context tell us in words like immediately, and upon this generation will come all these things. These inaugural events of the kingdom of God are spoken with prophetic power and illustrative language, drawing from a wide variety of prophetic analogy, pictures, and metaphor that we find throughout the Old Testament, and then on, repeated, echoed in the New. Therefore, this context and these words that we have just read this morning cannot be fully understood or appreciated apart from their greater linguistic and revelatory context. That is to say, the Word of God has a particular way of speaking oftentimes, and in this case we find especially as to prophecy. We also see that revelation, or God revealing, pulling back the curtain of who He is and what He intends to do and what He has done through His Scriptures, as He reveals that progressively through the course of redemptive history, we find a vantage point from which to understand the Word of God as it's delivered to us in these three verses today. The Word of God itself demands attention paid closely to itself for coherent understanding. This is always an axiom, always a principle. How do we understand the Word of God? Well, it's self-authenticating. In part, the answer to that question is, as we pay attention to the rest of the Word of God. The self-authenticating nature of Scripture is key, not just to its claims as the Word of God. The Scripture claims itself to be the Word of God and thereby is self-authenticating. Some might say, well, that's begging the question or that's, uh, you know, uh, it, that's not a legitimate claim. But if you think about it for a moment, the highest authority can claim nothing higher than itself. As we find in the book of Hebrews, God himself swears to whom that he will fulfill his promises to Abraham. Well, there is nothing higher than him, so he swears to himself. In this way, the Bible is self-authenticating as well. The same principle applies. How do we see that the Bible is true? We see it in itself. Uh, there's also, in addition to this, and secondarily, uh, other things that we can look to. And among them, what we witness today, prophecy and in history fulfilled prophecy. But let us note that the self-authenticating nature of Scripture is key to understand not just its claims as the Word of God, but also its clarity as the Word of God. In other words, how do we understand or make sense of different concepts and terms in the way the Bible speaks, 
especially in passages that can be more mysterious that include prophetic uh, ideas. Well, we do the same thing as, establish, as, we, as we do when we, when we declare that it is true. We look to the rest of the Word of God. Another way to apply this concept is to take note of the following. We should never seek to understand Scripture in the light of our experience, preconceived notions, current events, wishful thinking, felt needs, the demands of the marketplace, popular philosophy or opinion, modern influences, secular claims, academia, you know, professionals and experts in any field. We should never seek to understand the Scripture in light of any of those things. But instead, the reverse is the case. Instead, we are to seek to understand and discern all these things, our experience, our prior notions, current events, wishful thinking, felt needs, market demands, philosophy, all the rest in light of God's Word. God's Word is the light that illuminates the rest. We can't look to other things so much to shine light on God's Word as we look to God's Word to shine light on other things. Hermeneutics, you might be familiar with that term. That just means Scripture, interpreting Scripture. Hermeneutics is the discipline of biblical interpretation that guides us in this task. And I just submit to you this morning, I'm drawing your attention to it for this reason, that passages of Scripture such as these three verses we've read today place a higher demand, perhaps, on hermeneutics and other passages. Not that some areas of Scripture, uh, are, it, it's not relevant to apply other passages, but instead that these are more difficult to understand without a broad knowledge of God's Word. Uh, someone asked me one time, uh, we were debating a particular topic, and they said, well, that's your interpretation, or that passage has been interpreted many ways. Let's take, you know, maybe a controversial issue like the church and with regards to homosexuality. I remember that was p- the particular context of the conversation. And I was giving scriptures like Romans 1 and other scriptures like in Corinthians where it says, such were some of you. I said, yes, but that's just your interpretation of the scriptures. And so you see, they claimed one interpretation. In this conversation, I claimed another. Well, my next question for them was simply this. Do you think that there are some interpretations of Scripture that are better than others? You think there are some interpretations that are better than others? I just submit that to you because it's a good line of reasoning. It basically brings up the presuppositional question. Are some interpretations good versus others bad, some better, some more poor? Of course, the answer is yes, but what does that imply? It implies a it implies a standard of how to understand the Bible. And if that's a question in your mind, text me this week and I'll send you about 35 principles that I've collected from men who are smarter than me, where I have learned what are good principles to look to to understand how the Bible understands itself or leads us to understand itself. So all, interpreta- or all interpretations are subject to the Bible itself and thus the diligent task of the Bible student is to apply hermeneutics accordingly. So with that introduction, today's message will seek to draw perspective on three verses of Jesus' fifth discourse from the well of biblical precedent or from the greater context of Scripture. So let me open three major points with this heading this morning. Inaugural events in the reign of Christ reveal the following, or you could say inaugural events in the kingdom of God as Matthew takes up that theme throughout, reveal the following. And in our three verses this morning, 29, 30, and 31, we find the following. In in verse 29, authority is demonstrated. 
In verse 30, authority is received, that is received by Christ. And verse 3, 31, authority heralded. Inaugural events, or the opening chapter of this uh, era of Christ's rule and reign in His kingdom reveals authority demonstrated, authority received, and authority heralded. Let's look more closely at our text this morning and uh, notice how authority is manifest, showcased, or demonstrated, and particularly in this verse, in judgment. Matthew twenty four twenty nine. reading again. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. This is a prophecy I submit to you by the mouth of Christ about the rule of Christ. And Christ is saying that His authority, His rule and reign, His sovereignty, His power, His command over all the universe, over all nations, will be demonstrated authoritatively in bringing judgment at a particular time and place. That's the context I submit to you of these words and this prophecy in the fifth discourse of Matthew. First of all, notice though, before we discover that in a little more detail, uncover it specifically, and you can turn there in anticipation of our next text in Isaiah 13 where we find some parallel language. While you're turning there, just notice the first word in our text today, immediately. Immediately, it's a time signature. It seems to indicate, or it does indicate, when these events will follow something that has previously happened. We find that event, uh, the tribulation of those days. And I would refer to our message message last week and the week before, where Jesus talks about, in verse 15, for instance, the abomination of desolation that will signal something that is soon to occur. When the temple and this environment is perverse, and when these happenings begin to take place in the context of temple worship and first century Jerusalem, um, it says that uh, hardships will fall befall the people. Verse 17, for instance, let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in the house. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. So there's this idea of imminent concern and emergency is happening. It says in verse 22, indicating the scope and the intensity of this trial. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. He says, see, I have told you beforehand in verse 25. And then he warns them against false Christ, prophets and imposters who would perform great signs and lead them astray. He closes this the section we covered last week by saying, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. That language is paints in drastic terms, in dramatic terms, the, court, the events that are happening at this time. Normally, especially in Jewish cultures, or in Jewish culture and cultures that valued life, if there was a death, that body would be immediately taken care of and buried. But if there is such a widespread, devastating holocaust of a generation, then the vultures begin to circle in the skies. And you can tell where the corpses are. You can tell where the fallout of this great tribulation is because the birds signal the location by their circling over the dead bodies. And by this imagery, Jesus indicates a great tribulation. And this uh, is in the context of verse 29 when he says the tribulation of those days. 
And then the events that he prophesies in our passage today indicate something happening immediately on the heels. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven. Whatever could that mean? Well, before we touch on an answer to that question, move over a few verses and notice another time signature in verse 32. Jesus says, by way of parable, from the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, and again this language uh, brings to mind to the hearers the imminence of the situation. This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So what is about to happen? What is going to happen? Well, there's, if you will, celestial decreation language that he uses to indicate events in the near future. He says, Jesus declares, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and stars will fall from heaven. I submit to you that this is a descriptive way in prophetic language and metaphor to indicate inaugural events in the reign of Christ that demonstrate his authority. And to help us understand this, let us move to Isaiah 13. And the entire chapter actually is uh, more or less recapitulated in Matthew 24. What does the term recapitulation mean? Just a reminder, we talked about this concept which shows up in biblical prophecy last week. Recapitulation is the repetition of of principal stages or phases. And you see a pattern and continuity in biblical prophecy where similar language is used to describe in descriptive terms similar events. And Isaiah 13 is no exception to this. In fact, it's a perfect case in point. Listen as I read verse 1. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. First of all, verse 2. On a bare hill, raise a signal, cry aloud to them, wave the hand for them, to enter the gates of the nobles. So first of all, pausing there for a moment, in verse 1, we have the object of this uh, prophecy as a nation-state, Babylon. Babylon can expect the following. Uh, Secondly, in verse 2, we find a place of proclamation, a situation that is significant, oftentimes in prophecy, where this word is delivered. Uh, On a bare hill, raise a signal. And cry aloud to them. The herald stands on a prominent location that indicates his power to pronounce authority over this area or over this people. And then he announces what will soon befall them. Where is Christ in Matthew 24 as he declares these things? I'll just remind you that he himself is on a mountain. In Matthew 24, we have seen this in verse 3. As he, Christ, sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the close of the age. And then he proceeds to answer their question in prophetic form. As we move to verse 3 of Isaiah 13, uh, he says, I myself have commanded my consecrated ones and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exalting ones. And so you see that there are factions that are going to be sovereignly appointed. There are warring peoples 
that will be raised up to bring this uh, demonstration of authority and judgment upon Babylon. Verse 4 continues in this theme. The sound of a tumult is on the mountains. As of a great multitude, the sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together, the Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. Again, in our passage today, these themes are recapitulated. The principal phases and stages are in Matthew's uh, account in Matthew 24 as well. Reminding you when Christ declares in verse 7, for instance, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginning of the birth pangs. Again, we're just moving back and forth to get a broader context of the language used by Jesus in Matthew 24 by looking at Isaiah 13. Now, we get into some interesting language indeed in verse 5. It says, They come from a distant land from the end of the heavens. Notice this, the end of the heavens. So the scope of the devastation and activity that is taking place is demonstrated, it's illustrated by celestial language. The end of the heavens. Oftentimes you see this in prophetic literature in the Bible. The ends of the earth, the four winds of the earth, the far corners of the earth, or the heavens also are employed to make this point. The Lord and the weapons of His indignation to destroy the whole land. And the, this uh, celestial language will increase later, or there will be more of it in the text. Then in verse 10, we begin, to, or I'm sorry, in uh, verse 5, uh, which we just read, verse 6, we see lament. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty will come. And the lament uh, attitude and context is picked up in Matthew uh, 23, as Jesus himself cries over Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how long I have sought to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks. Moving on in Isaiah 13, 7. Therefore, all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. And in this demonstration of authority over Babylon, those who have reared their ugly heads against the sovereign God will be reduced to feeble and vulnerable elements of society. They will melt. Uh, Their braggadocio and their claims of power over the Almighty, their pride will be destroyed in a moment. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be as desperate and and, uh, in in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be ashen. Their jaws will drop. The look of fear will be pasted across their faces as they see the devastating effects of God bringing His judgment upon them. Verse 9, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation. And we recall again the abomination that brings desolation. The abominable acts of Babylon were bringing desolation upon the people, just as the first century Jews could expect such a thing if they did not trust in the Messiah, but continued to offer sacrifices uh, heretically on the altar after the once-for-all sacrifice had come. It says to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. 
And then here, pay close attention to verse 10. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for its iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. And the language continues. Even patterns of old judgment or judgments that had gone before, like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, is referred to. It's recapitulated, if you will, in Isaiah 13, 19. And it's done so again. We'll see that later in the context in coming weeks as we move through the fifth discourse in Matthew. Uh, at the end of this proclamation, this oracle, he says that the area and the destruction will, be, will bring such desolation that in verse 21, wild animals will lie down there, their houses will be full of howling creatures, their ostriches will dwell, and their wild goats will dance, hyenas will cry in its towers, and jackals in the pleasant places. Its time is close at hand, and its days will not be prolonged. Again, there's a time signature to this prophecy as well. You could expect it to come just around the corner, and you could expect the judgment to be so devastating that the wild animals will be the only ones who profit off the destruction, just as the buzzards and vultures circle over the corpses, but the entire society and generation who had obstinately stood against the favored one, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, will now be judged for so doing in their whole scale uh, destruction as God brings warfare and slaughter across the land. Notice this language, this decreation language. Stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising. The moon will not shed its light. This is the way the Bible speaks of kings and powers, nation states, and authority structures collapsing in on themselves. It's been helpful in my own study to just remember this. Have you ever opened up the Encyclopedia Britannica? I suppose for you younger ones, Wikipedia could provide you a source now that everything's digitized. I remember being fascinated with all the flags of the nations of the world. You know, there's probably between 200 and 300 nations or something like that. And what do you see on those flags um, as repeated themes, pictures or icons that represent powers and authorities? Well, you see stars, do you not? You see moons and you see rising suns and the like. Well, these pictures and this icon, these icons are ancient indeed. All the way back to the Egyptians and before in hieroglyph form and so on, nations have been identifying themselves with celestial bodies. The Bible uses that picture language and metaphor to describe those who would seek to shine bright or that, that would exalt themselves as a beacon of light or as a point of reference for their people, like the heavens, like the stars. You see, for ancient man, they would look to the constellations to know the times and the seasons, to give them direction. I mean, to this day, the North Star still is a reference point. It's a fixed point for us to establish a direction. Mankind would look to the stars to provide something of a knowledge for the future in their pagan witchcraft and idolatry and astrology and, and so on. So those who sought to uh, get uh, power over men or establish themselves as influential and significant authorities over them 
they would associate themselves with stars, with heavenly bodies, and so on. And even in the scriptures, this language is helpful to understand what is being spoken to. You remember Joseph's dream, for instance. What does he see? He sees the stars bowing down, as it were, or heavenly bodies. Can't remember the circumstances specifically. That represented those who would normally be over him, like his parents and older brothers actually bowing to him. And this was a picture that was given in symbolic form of when he would be second in command in Egypt. Incidentally, this week, I was reminded of God's sovereign power to put kings and governments in their places. Uh, this week, uh, if you followed you know, the internet news at all, as I sometimes do, you'll find that there is almost, uh, you know, uh, there's a certain chaos and, and frantic reaction that people and powers and markets and stuff have had to the United Kingdom voting to remove themselves from the European Union. The European Union itself is a blue flag, blue field with gold stars in a circle. Well, God has sovereignly by the, in His hand providentially moved in history to push back, as I see it, to push back nations to their allotted boundaries according to Acts 17.26. What is the message we can take even today? Well, there are times when God intervenes sovereignly in history to show that despite your best efforts, I will not allow a babel to usurp my name and to defame me forever. There will be times of my choosing in the course of history where judgment will be levied against a people like Babylon and like the first century Jews who rejected their Messiah and said, we can organize our affairs, we can preserve our future, we can design and engineer a salvation and a hope and peace independent of the only one who can save the soul or the only one who can guarantee the future, the only Alpha and the Omega, the only Prince of Peace. And in times like these, God brings judgment on the arrogance of a people and those who've exalted themselves like fixed points and stars who claim to provide light through dark times like the moon that shines or they're the sun that provides life for their people, for their government, for their kingdom. They are brought down, they are fallen and they grovel in the dust before the king of kings. The his, history records these very events. I've mentioned to you last time Josephus, the great historian, recorded much of the events of A.D. 70 that dovetail in fulfillment much of what we read in Matthew 24 and 25. John Forster notes this in his book, The Gospel Narrative, when he says the following, In ancient hieroglyphic writings, the sun, moon, and stars represented empires and states with their sovereigns and nobility. The eclipse of these luminaries was said to denote temporary national disasters, or an entire overthrow of any state. This is still an Eastern mode of writing, and there are some classical examples of it. The prophets frequently employ it, so that their styles seem to be a speaking hieroglyphic. Thus, Isaiah describes the destruction of Babylon, that was our passage in chapter 13, and Ezekiel, that of Egypt, for later study, that's chapter 32 in Ezekiel. In accordance with this prediction, Josephus gives an account of the persecution and slaughter of the nobility and principal men in the city by the infuriated zealots, computing their number at 12,000. So notice what has taken place in history. The record has shown important and prominent historical figure or a governing figures within first century Israel themselves were slaughtered to the tune 
of 12,000. I submit to you that though there are other applications of this text, this was a direct fulfillment of what Jesus said in chapter 23 of Matthew. He says, verse 35, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. The inaugural events of the rule and reign of Christ came, brothers and sisters, with a staggering, jaw-dropping, astonishing, historically unprecedented in many ways, demonstration of authority. This ought to move us to worship, to consider God's power and His prerogative to exercise it in time. We ought to bow before the one who holds the future in his hands and who's, of whom it is said prophetically the government is on his shoulders. And we also can take great confidence in this. We need not fear those who would say, I'm more powerful, I have a better idea, the Bible is obsolete, who is God anyway? We need to relegate Christianity to the dustbin of arcane religions. We can reject all of this as we see God demonstrating his authority in judgment, even in our day, in this time, as he did in A.D. 70, in that first generation of Christians, as he did over Babylon. One way you could say a truth or a lesson from this passage is, is that when you start to act like Babylon, you get what Babylon got. Think of the book of Revelation. Uh, Babylon becomes a picture in prophecy to indicate what you can expect if you and your beastly arrogance raise yourself above the knowledge of God. And you can expect a demonstration of his authority in judgment on your own head. So let us announce this in hopes that people would repent of their wicked ways and trust in any other authority and place their hope in Jesus Christ, who is the only uh, true son of God. Secondly, this morning, a major point, inaugural events in the reign of Christ reveal authority received. For a parallel text for this, turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. While you're turning there, let me reread our passage, just verse 30 of Matthew 24. Jesus prophesies, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The coming of the Son of Man, the coming of the Lord in this text, and also clouds are two significant, um, it's two significant pictures that reoccur in prophecy. If you have some extra time, as I said before, many of these words could really deserve their own word study through the course of the Bible. And as you do this type of thing, you will see a lot more clarity coming to the text. Think of just clouds, for instance. How were clouds represented in the history of God's dealing, His revelation, uh, dealings with in revelation to His people? Think of the cloud by day and the fire by night, where God manifests Himself in that form. And the cloud then represented direction, represented the presence and abiding uh, with his people. Think of the Shekinah glory, which was a cloud-like form, which God manifests himself in and would fill up the temple and the holy place. Think of the glory that emanated from that cloud. 
Think of the scope of God's work that is represented in some cases by a cloud and think of the dynamics of his um, operation and will in history where the clouds are referred to as something of a chariot that ushers in his plan and his purpose and in his perfect timing. This is the idea of clouds that provides some background for our text today. Also, when you hear the word coming, your first impulse might be, well, the second coming of Christ. Oftentimes in, you know, kind of common evangelicalism today, when we think of the coming of the Lord, we tend to truncate it thinking only of the second coming of Christ when he'll return for the living and the dead and the history will be wrapped up, the new heavens and new earth will come. Well, through the course of scripture, there are other comings of the Lord. The Lord uses this language to declare a time of an appointment with his people for, the, for favor or an appointment, a scheduled judgment that will come upon those who are lost and deserving of judgment. So we can take this into account as we move back then to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7, let me open in verse 1 and 2. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Verse 2, Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. I want to draw that to your attention because there's a reference to the four winds in our text today. Verse 31, it says he will gather his elect from the four winds. So later we find more parallels. Verse 9, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire, a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. And I looked then because the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and his body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Notice in context, authority is demonstrated in this passage too. When these beasts who themselves represent you know, aberrant authorities are destroyed, And their dominion, their rule, their control, their exercise of authority is destroyed by the greater authority. Who's this? The Ancient of Days. But notice in verses 13 and 14, we move from authority demonstrated to authority received. That is received by Christ. Verse 13. I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heavens. There's our imagery of clouds of heaven. There came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days. So there's a coming to the Ancient of Days of the Son of Man. It says he was presented before him. Verse 14. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Brothers and sisters, We could do well to memorize this text. Daniel 7 is one of those kingpins of biblical understanding. There was a time prophesied in ages past that the Messiah, the Son of Man, identified. And why do you think the Son of Man was the most popular term uh, that Jesus used for himself? We'll find even in the course of the gospel that it got him into trouble more than once. 
It's not because he was trying to be self-deprecating. I'm just merely a human, though he certainly was a human. He was more than just a human. He was the human, the Son of Man, and fully God, who would receive a kingdom when he came to the Father, and we see this fulfilled in his ascension. This would happen. His authority to rule and reign was just about to happen. It was on the horizon. And when he came before the Lord at his ascension, before the ancient of days, that is, he would receive a kingdom. He would receive authority. In fact, he would receive the power to summon the 12 legions of angels that he said he could well summon when he stood before the court falsely accused to do his will and his beck and call. And he did. There is consummation that we see in Daniel 7, 1 through 14, prophesied and fulfilled in the gospel of Matthew. Notice the other language that is paralleled here. That is the fulfillment, and as we notice this, we see the fulfillment of Daniel 7 in the course of the gospel. Four winds are referred to to identify the scope of where these wicked forces and authorities have operated and then where their dominion will be cut off. The four winds are referred to in Matthew chapter 24 as the areas from which the the demonstrated authority and the authority received will be evident as the elect are drawn in from the distant parts of the earth. This sign, it says in Matthew 24, will appear in heaven. Uh, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. We see that the uh, sign of the Son of Man or the... uh, coming of the Son of Man before the Ancient of Days, in fact, happened in heaven in Daniel chapter 7. We see the clouds of heaven referring, as we already mentioned, to presence and glory and scope and dynamic nature of God's rule and reign referenced in both texts. We also see the tribes of the earth in verse 14 of Daniel 7 to him was given dominion and glory in a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and tribes should serve him. There is a testimony of nations or tribes, if you will, who react to the authority of the Son in our text today. Matthew 24, 31. He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather His elect from the four winds from, the end, uh, uh, from one end of heaven to the other. Excuse me, if we back up one verse. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Uh, Some have said that the translation would be better stated, all the tribes of the land will mourn, uh, speaking to the local judgment that will take place when the temple and Jerusalem is assaulted by the invading Roman armies. But in my mind, the text could just as well read the tribes of the earth and also be a fulfillment of Daniel 7. Both words are potential interpretations from the Greek. So here we have the authority of Christ received. There will come a day before this generation passes away. There will come a day immediately following the tribulation where the Son of Man will execute His prerogative as divine King of Kings, having received the authority and kingdom from the Ancient of Days in His ascension to the Father. What Daniel sees prophetically, this generation that Jesus is prophesying to will experience in fulfillment. What Daniel sees prophetically, this generation will experience in fulfillment. What is this? The coronation of the Son of Man. 
Jesus Christ himself. And he, in his coronation, receives universal authority. And he exercises this. And among his first acts to demonstrate his authority as consummate king of kings is judgment on the covenantally faithless. And this is what we see. This is what we view in context in Matthew 24. Now this context is continued. The authority received is referenced and Daniel's prophecy is referred to in other locations as well. Just touching one or two, let us see in Matthew 26, for instance, in verse 63. Here Jesus is standing before Caiaphas, the high priest, and also the scribes and elders are gathered. In verse 62, the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? Notice the context of this exchange. The presumptive authorities, the high priests, these are the rulers and the leaders, the religious leaders, and, of course, in the context of the gospel, we see political leaders involved in the trial of Christ as well. They're demanding by their self-ascribed authority that Jesus answer for himself. What does he say? Verse 63, but Jesus remained silent. Why did Jesus remain silent? Because he was king of kings. And they had no ultimate authority over him. In fact, the reverse was true. If he chose to speak, it would not be on their terms. It would be on his. And woe to those who think themselves an authority over Christ when he chooses to speak. Because if that message doesn't come in proclamation of the gospel, that moves the self-authenticating or the self-ascribed authoritarian to repentance. The only other option is judgment. Listen to Christ speak, verse 63. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are Christ, the Christ, the Son of God. 64. Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has utterly bla- uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? We have heard, you have heard, now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Why did they cry out in blasphemy? Because they understood the claim. Jesus was identifying himself, and rightly so, as the one who would receive ultimate authority when he came before the ancient of days. And he said that they would see him there. Again, we move through the text, and in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, the first martyr, is being stoned. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged. The sermon that Stephen had preached to them of the sovereignty of God and their own history. They ground their teeth at him, but he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and here's the language again, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What was their response? They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him, and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. This is the context here. Through this witness, through this martyr, these religious leaders were able to see once again that Christ indeed had ascended, and he was standing at the right hand of the Father, He had received his authority and he was about to demonstrate it. God in his loving kindness was issuing a call through the herald Stephen 
to bow before his lordship. But the obstinate plugged their ears, yelled and screamed, and murdered the messenger. Jesus had prophesied that this would take place. He said in Matthew 23, 34, Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you again may come all the righteous blood shed on earth. And then he says, on account of that shed blood, he will bring all these things, demonstration of his authority and judgment, upon this generation. This morning, let us close in point number three by following the exam- by taking note of the example of Stephen himself. Authority heralded. The inaugural events in Christ's reign reveal authority demonstrated, authority revealed, and finally, authority heralded. What is a herald? One who repeats. He's an emissary. He's an ambassador. He repeats the proclamation, the authoritative declaration, the will of the king. He himself does not have any authority, any authority other than what is delegated to him by virtue of the truth of the message and the one who gave it to him. This is what you and I are, brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ today. We have a certain delegated authority to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. And in the face of anyone who would deny that, testify as Stephen did, even at the cost of our own life if necessary. This is what it means to be a martos, a witness for the glory of God. Notice in our text, Matthew 23, 31, it says, And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. This term angels in the Greek, angelos, or something of the kind, it means messengers. Literally, it just means messengers. And interpreters rely on the context of the passage to know whether it refers to messengers that are celestial in nature, you know, like the creatures, the glorious creatures that do God's bidding uh, that are not humans, but they're, uh, you know, like the seraphim and cherubim and so on that do God's will and bring his message when he so wills and sends them. But also angels, you'll see through the course of New Testament, sometimes the messenger refers to the gospel herald the human who is called to bring the message forth. Now, there has been some debate as to the interpretation in this passage, whether or not angels refers to heavenly beings or to the apostles and the prophets and the disciples who would come after and declare the trumpet call of the gospel. Well, perhaps in one sense, both could be true. With respect to the demonstration of Christ's authority, we see in these moments that he indeed does have the power to summon angels at his beck and call and to intervene. This reminds us of Matthew 26, 53. When again, falsely accused, he's standing before the powers that be and he says, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? That it must be so. And Christ is saying, make no mistake, my humility My submission is absolutely voluntary. I am like a sheep led to the slaughter, and it pleased the will of my Father to crush me, according to Isaiah 53. But this king will rise again, and he will come in judgment, and he has the power to summon 12 legions of angels to do his beck and call, to kill 12,000 dignitaries in a single city in one generation, if he so chooses. So, in the context of Matthew 24, angels... In response to the inaugural, or with respect to the inaugural re, uh, events of Christ's rule and reign, 
could refer to that time when everything is summoned at his will and command to wreak great havoc on the land to what he prophesies. But I submit to you with respect to the gospel and perhaps even more direct to our context, angels, messengers, does in fact refer to those like Stephen, the apostles who would follow, and all of the disciples. It says, again, he will send out his messengers or angels with a loud trumpet call. They will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to another. This is authority heralded. Notice the imagery, angels we covered, trumpets and winds. We don't have time to cover it today, but if you go to Numbers chapter 10, for instance, verses 1 through 10, you see how trumpets are incorporated into the worship and the culture of the people, the nation of Israel under the Mosaic order. In this context, we see that they serve as uh, to accompany the herald with triumph or worship, war, and assembly are all implied by the blast of the trumpet. Triumph, worship, a call to war and arms or assembly. And when the trumpet blast of the gospel goes forth, all four themes are indeed in view. Jesus Christ rules and reigns. He has made in His own flesh a way for us to be in union with Him and to receive forgiveness from our sins and to be resurrected with Him, to rule and to reign with Him. But, not, but there is no hope apart from Him. So join the triumphal train the victory parade of his exploits through history, and repent. That means turn from your wicked ways. Renounce the authority, either in yourself or the pagan influences that you've relied on. Repent of it. Turn away from it and place yourself with the king who triumphs and place faith in his authority, his power, his word, his rule, his reign, his sacrifice, his redemption. Trumpet signals worship. When we bring forth as we do even this morning in the context of the gathered assembly, the proclamation that Christ has risen from the dead, that Christ has ascended and He rules and reigns at the right hand of the Father. What are we doing? We're sounding the trumpet blast, calling the assembly to worship because Christ has intervened for us. His works through history are manifest. We have personally experienced the fruit of them in our own salvation and we recognize that and we echo and proclaim it and shout it in our worship assembly even today. There's a call to war. The, the church advance in a militaristic fashion. The gates of hell does not prevail against her when she stands with Christ. And as we march into battle, we go as emissaries, as heralds, to gather the elect from the four winds, the distant corners, from sea to shining sea, if you will, or as far as you can imagine, the nooks and crannies of cultures and false religions, ideologies, and nations who have yet not heard the gospel will hear the triumphal sound of the trumpet of the call to repent and believe in Jesus Christ as we continue to fulfill the Great Commission. And again, and finally, the call to assembly, which we've already covered, there's a unifying effect that the gospel has with those who are called to assemble and to march on account of our king's orders our general in glory, sending us out into the mission field. Notice again in Matthew 26, 64, three words. Jesus said to him, again, responding to the false authorities, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. I would like us to take away, in closing this morning, that phrase, from now on. 
Something happened. There was, as we mentioned last week, a seismic shift in redemptive history. There was an inaugural event in the kingdom of God. In the incarnation, in the work on Calvary, in the resurrection from the dead, in the ascension before uh, the Lord to his right hand, in the receiving of his great kingdom, there was something that happened that changed history from now on. That is, from this point in time we read of in the Gospels, through today and through the end of time. Remember that this morning as we remember our call in the end of Matthew to join with those who have gone before us. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18. He came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So Jesus has received the authority, has he not? This is the closing statements that he is leaving his disciples with. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. The Son of Man, that is to say, has ascended and has received his kingdom. Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of who? Of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age or from now on. The message today Although it's heavy and weighty with judgment for those who would deny him, there is such a wellspring of confidence from which we can draw encouragement for continuing steadfast and movable and always abounding in the work of the Lord. Let us look to Matthew 24, 29 through 31 so that we can continue about the business of the Great Commission. The demonstration, the acquisition, and the proclamation of the kingly authority of Christ continues to this day. And through your service, church, and through our gathering even today, through your testimony, even this morning, remember the power and glory of the one who is with us always to the end of the age and never forget it. If our King of Kings has power over death, sin, the grave, and every authority that rears its ugly head by religious leader or nation state from the beginning of time until the end, if our sovereign is king of kings, that is to say, and he has promised to be with us always to the end of the age, from now on, what have we to fear? Only fear the Lord. Let us close in prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for the powerful, encouraging, life-giving words that we find in your holy scripture. I pray that you would shore us up in our most holy faith through what we have studied this day. Lord, bind our hearts to the truth of your holy word. Remind us that we serve a king who rules over kings and over all authorities, princes and powers. Remind us, Lord, that there is a divine plan that is unfolding yet today where all things are coming in accord, into accord with your will. Lord, help us to be obedient to live with confidence, declaring as heralds of the great gospel of Jesus Christ that you have ascended, you have taken your rightful place, and every knee must bow and every tongue must confess, either in repentance or they will soon in judgment, that you are the only way, the truth, and the life. I pray, Lord, when you do finally return, that you would find us faithful, Lord, about the business as the church of Jesus Christ occupying until you come. Thank you for this great privilege. We pray that your spirit would equip us for it. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen.